This is Talkin' Mule Deer with your hosts, Steve Belinda and Jody Stemmler. Talkin' Mule Deer takes you on a journey to learn more about the Mule Deer Foundation, Mule Deer and Blacktail Deer Biology and Management, tips and tactics for hunting, conservation issues, and even features some of our corporate and celebrity partners. Now, let's start Talkin' Mule Deer. All right. This is the first Talking Mule Deer live podcast, and we're going live for the first time. This is Jody Stemmler. I've got my co-host, Steve Belinda, on. Steve, how you doing? Steve? Did we lose Steve? <laughs> we're going to be working through some of our technical difficulties here, folks. We've, we've been practicing this, but this is all new. Uh, but we wanted to try something new for you guys because we have something that is going to be fairly historic in the conservation world, at least uh, for my career, uh, something that I've worked on my entire 20 <laughs> plus years of work on conservation issues on Capitol Hill. And uh, and we wanted to celebrate that live with our audience and, and get a couple of folks that we have a tremendous amount of respect for and, and have worked with for a number of years on conservation policy issues to help talk about that. We're talking about the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, the House is about to go live on their vote for that. They're working on one other bill. It was supposed to happen at 3.30 this afternoon, but they are wrapping up on another bill right now. And the next vote that occurs will be the Great American Outdoors Act. So. Again, I'm going to see if Jeff is, uh, if Steve has gotten us on, and then I'd like to introduce our our, our speakers here. Jeff, are you, uh, Steve, are you on? Whoever I'm talking to, Steve, you there? Well, Jody, may, maybe I got to take over as host. There you go. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Steve's apparently missing in action. He's there. I know he is. It's just our audio isn't working. So with that said, Miles, Miles Moretti, we've got you on. Why don't you give us a quick introduction? And then if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to have you be the one that introduces our guest speakers today who are going to help us talk through what this means uh, from a, a conservation perspective. So go ahead. Take it away, Miles. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited on two, on both a couple accounts. One is uh, the fact that we're doing this live. This is something new. Um, during this COVID-19, we've had to just learn how to do things differently. And this is just one of those many things that we're doing different in this, in this new normal. And so, uh, and, and, and plus this historic day, um, a lot of good stuff has happened in the last year for conservation. And, and uh, we're really excited about what's going on in Congress. Yeah. Okay. So, so Miles, do you want to give us an introduction, or do you want me to go I'll, ahead and make the introduction to to Jeff and James? I will introduce them because, for one thing, uh, one of these gentlemen is uh, chairman of the Hunting and Shooting uh, Sports Council, and I'm on that council. So, if you hear me calling Mr. Chairman, it's because uh, he demands that. And uh, but we're glad to have Jeff. Crane, he doesn't demand that. <laughs> the Congressional Sportsman Foundation. And I'm not, I'm not kidding you. These guys work tirelessly with congressional delegation uh, at the federal level, the governors, the state legislators. I mean, a lot of what, what we're going to talk about today wouldn't happen without the Congressional Sportsman Foundation. And of course, the leadership Jeff Crane brings is just amazing to the whole conservation community. So Jeff, welcome. Glad you're here with us today. Thank you, uh, Miles, and thank you, Jody. And uh, I like hearing Mr. Chairman out of your lips, Miles. I don't understand <laughs> it at all, but it sure sounds good coming off of you. But thank you for the introduction. Glad to be here. I'm actually sitting in my office kind of happily because it's absolutely pouring down rain. And under normal circumstances, I, I would have 
probably hopefully been inside the Capitol by now waiting for this vote. But uh, under the COVID, we're not allowed in there. And so um, two blocks away, watching it pour down rain and waiting like everyone else with the anticipation on the vote for the Great American Outdoors Act. Yeah, it's probably a little disappointing when we've got something as uh, as Im- impressive and huge as this on our radar screen, something we've worked on for many years to not physically be able to be there. Um, you know, I remember on votes we had 20 years ago on this same issue that ultimately ended up not having, but being there and watching it live is, is, is quite an experience. So that's one of those downsides we have. But thank you for yeah. being on, Jeff. And, and James, uh, Miles, you want, you want to give yeah. James an intro as well? Yeah, I, I just want to give uh, all those that are listening, um, there's nothing wrong with your your audio. Um, James will sound a little different to most of us Westerners. Um, he's from, from Mississippi, and uh, <laughs> uh, James, James is a great colleague of both Jeff and I's. Uh, we're both all three uh, members of Boone and Crockett, and uh, we've uh, proudly worked together uh, to help that organization. And uh, James is... Uh, and I, James, I, I never get this right, but uh, uh, while forever Mississippi, Mississippi Wild, um, and group, and is uh, definitely does works on the policy end. And every time I'm ever in D.C., I usually see James somewhere wandering the halls of Congress. But um, if there's anything you want to know about things like the Farm Bill and and any other legislation, James Cummings is the one to go to. So James, welcome. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'm I'm here in my office with my dog Sika, so uh, uh, really glad to be on on board with the first one. And 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 Miles, you really couldn't have said it better. Talking about Jeff and see it in the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and how we all rely on on their team in terms of helping us get get legislation through through Congress. And and I have to think that uh, our the founder of the Boone and Crockett Club, Theodore Roosevelt, would be pretty proud today of, of, of what's getting ready to pass to get past the House and, and, and being signed by the president. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a great day for us all, uh, COVID or not. Uh, so it's good to, be, good to be with you. And thank you, Miles, for all your leadership and, and, and what you've done through your career as well. Yep. Thanks, thank James. You. And as, Thanks, James. as you, I'm sorry, sir. And James has mentioned, he uh, mentioned Boone and Crockett Club founder, Theodore Roosevelt. James is also a regular member and chair of the policy committee for the Boone and Crockett Club. And Boone and Crockett has played an active role on both the Great American Outdoors Act here and also with the American Wildlife Conservation Partners. Uh, and the development of the most recent report that they put out, Wildlife for the 21st Century, which we will be talking about today as well. Um, probably as we sit here and wait for this vote to take place, we'll be getting into more details on that as well. But uh, but but we appreciate you being on, James. Now, uh, Steve was having headphone issues, uh, so he says that they may be fixed. So why don't we see, it, you know, it's been nice and quiet without yeah, you talking, Steve. I, I like it. I think we need to change the format, Jody. <laughs> Steve? Ah, ah, nice. We've got another another little while. No, we, we won't give uh, we won't give Steve a hard time there and uh and, and tease him on that. We'll we'll hopefully get his his headphones fixed and get him on board here. These are some of these technical difficulties we need to work out, but uh but we will get him on. And in the meantime, what I wanted to do um is is start off unless somebody had a, another idea of what they wanted to start with. My interest was to to go back 
50 years and talk about what the land and water conservation fund is. None of us were there when that went down, but we know what that is all about. And I thought Jeff and James, you guys have worked on this a long time and, and can give us a little bit of a history of what the land and water conservation fund is all about. So we get some context about then why this effort um, that kind of reheated about 20 years ago with the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, which did not pass, but the effort to get to the full and permanent funding. So Jeff, do you want to start with that? Sure, I'll, I'll start just briefly on that um, because I wasn't working up here 50 years ago, Jody. And, and, um, but uh, the Land and Water Conservation Fund was a really great idea that, that came about uh, a long time ago. And essentially it's taking um, revenue streams off of uh, um, offshore oil and gas uh, royalties and reprogramming it back um, into this LWCF fund to be split between the states and then federal projects as well. And it's probably the largest single um, annual contribution just in the straight um, conservation funding um, coming coming really through a federal appropriations process until recently and so um over the years i don't know what the total is but it's uh it's billions and billions of dollars that have been been put back into conservation so it's a great win and james maybe you can expand a little bit on it and um, you might have a better background or jody i know you worked on this as well but um we can certainly talk a little bit after this about how um this bill is changing that and changing the future of, of how this is going to work so yeah no Jeff, I think that's a that's a great summary. So uh, the legislation was was introduced in a, and passed Congress in 1965, actually the year I was born. Uh, and and as you said, Jeff, it really divided. Forty percent of the funds go to state to the state side. Forty percent go to the, the federal side. And whether it's funding access or lands that we enjoy hunting and fishing on, uh, you know, or you know, a soccer field, you know, or a baseball diamond in, in your local community, it, it, it impacts all of that. Uh, it, it is capped uh, at, at $900 billion annually, uh, and it, it's primarily, you know, coming from either you know, off the Atlantic coast, uh, the Alaska coast, the West coast, or the Gulf of Mexico in terms of uh, funds from offshore oil and gas drilling. Uh, and, it, and at one point in time, uh, about five years ago, we were hitting about two and a half million dollars a day uh, in leases from offshore oil and gas. So this does it's not funded through through from a taxpayer standpoint. So we are tapping resources uh, that are coming into into the government coffers uh, and actually putting them back in to, to benefit. And so sometimes people ask me, why would you support this? You know, if you live in Mississippi, well, it's 41 states drain. Uh, down the Mississippi River. So there's more we can spend some of these funds in the interior part of the state, the better off our Gulf of Mexico will be. You, you so, know, James, uh, Jody, James uh, made a great point there. Um, you know, uh, we, a lot of this conservation uh, funding, when people question it, what they don't understand is there is so much interaction across state levels and across drainage basin, whether you're in the Mississippi drainage basin or the Colorado River drainage basin basin out west, um, the impacts are what happens upstream happens, impacts things downstream. And so um, these kind of funds can help help uh, cross that whole uh, watershed and across the country in multiple states. So it, it you know, it, it isn't taking it from one place and giving it to another. 
Yeah, so so LWCF was passed in 1965, and the the initial vision behind it was behind a conservation and recreation vision that public lands and parks were important for the health of of the the nation. And investing in those and using revenues from a non-renewable resource and putting them on the ground for parks, recreation, public lands, open space, was a good investment of those non-renewable resources. It was authorized at $900 million, like you guys said, the problem was that it had to be appropriated every year by Congress. And historically, Congress didn't appropriate that. I think we only hit the maximum level, the authorized level of 900 million a handful of times, maybe two or three in the course of those 50 years. Uh, the money was supposed to go to that. It was dedicated by congressional intent or it was, it was supposed to be allocated by congressional intent, but it never went where it was supposed to go. So starting probably 25, 30 years ago, there was an increasing effort to get full permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. At the same time, there was also an effort to get uh, funding for wildlife through to expand the existing Pittman-Robertson Dingle Johnson programs to get more funding for the broad suite of wildlife species that uh, state fish and wildlife agencies are working with. That ultimately came into a bill called the Conservation and Reinvestment Act, which packaged a number of different things, including full funding for Land and Water Conservation Fund, funding for the wildlife agencies and coastal restoration and historic preservation and a number of other things. We got really close on that. Um, that was the, the first issue I worked with on on Capitol Hill, and we passed it in the House. Uh, and then we were moving forward to get a Senate passage and, and time just ran out on the clock and we did it and didn't get it. But for 20 more years now, we've been sitting here trying to figure out a way to get full permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. So fast forward now to a year or two ago, uh, Jeff, we, you, the conservation community has started to work on it on a number of directions, including access for sportsmen, recreational access, the making public lands public concept. Um, so tell us a little bit about how things have adjusted or, or expanded over recent years and why congressional interest has grown again um, since, well, about five years ago when, when LWCF celebrated its 50th anniversary. So you mentioned the making public lands public, and what that simply is is earmarking $15 million or 3%, uh, whichever is greater, of the LWCF funds to be set aside annually to go for access only projects and primarily for hunting, fishing and other outdoor recreation. So it was a way for, for us to really kind of unite the, the, the sportsman's community behind the overall LWCF effort with a, with a direct interest. Because as we all know, especially out west, there's, uh, there's tens of millions of acres of, of public lands that are uh, open to hunting and fishing and outdoor recreation, but they are, they are inaccessible. And this provides a vehicle to try to use funding with uh, willing landowners to create easements and rights away and whatnot. So um, that created a, a, a bond that, that broadened that push in terms of LWCF uh, when the broader coalition agreed to to accept that, and uh, two years ago, um, the, the LWCF was permanently authorized, though it didn't have any funding attached to it. But uh, it took it away from from the idea that the appropriators were going to be able to say, as Jody said, how much money 
um, annually was going to get there, especially since we weren't coming anywhere close to that $900 million annually. And so um, this is the final final step in that to, to permanently dedicate uh, $900 million annually with the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act. So in a long story short, by by creating another another mechanism to get the sporting community and involved in the LWCF with vested interests and other outdoor recreationists um, to, to try to solve some of these issues with physical access to federal public lands. Um, this broadened that scope and, and I think really helped uh, helped encourage a bipartisan approach to this. And we had a huge vote in the Senate with 73 to 25 on final passage. So uh, fingers crossed, I think we're looking good in the house when they can finally get it onto the floor, so. And, and let me let me give also just a little bit more on the pu making public lands public um, to explain a little bit of why that was necessary. It might seem obvious that you know you need to create recreational access, and in many cases it did. But the way the LWCF allocations worked, it was a lot easier. Projects that were bigger uh, and 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 had more habitat value, bigger picture for acquisitions often ranked higher as a, a, a project that could get done. So often these easements the, or these recreational access pieces might just be small little pieces of land and they wouldn't rank out as high as, as a larger parcel might in the scheme of things. So the ability to direct some money onto these, these seemingly small projects, but ones that will make a huge difference in the amount of land that, that uh, recreationists, hunters and anglers are able to access because of it, is a pretty big deal um, and, and gives those more a higher priority. The other part I want to emphasize is that LWCF, as we've, we've talked about, is often land acquisition, but it's not entirely. There's a big portion of it that goes to the state uh, recreation uh, departments or, or state parks departments uh, and local recreation for local parks and recreation projects. Uh, here in Colorado, uh, where I live, there's a lot of that has been dedicated for trail development or trailhead access. Um, for some local communities, it's, uh, it, it's, it's playgrounds and things like that. So it's a really broad spectrum and it does truly touch on a wide variety of issues. It will certainly benefit those of us who are public land hunters in the West, but it's going to benefit people on the East Coast who want a public lands hunt or need access. Or even if you have or need a green belt in your community, this might be, be something that's, that's relevant. Now, I understand. Once again, we're going to try. Steve, have we got you now? I'm back, baby. <laughs> Darn it! No, ah. people don't know. <laughs> yeah, the irony is that Steve is also the keeper of the sound effects, so this could get real interesting now. But <laughs> Glad uh, you know, to have it actually, you um, uh, I could listen to you guys all day, and I know I was leaving you in good hands. Plus, it also allowed me to go get my uh find my little celebratory flask which i plan on lifting here as soon as we uh, <laughs> uh pass this this uh hr uh th this bill in the house so you know um listening to the conversation i think you know if, if folks aren't getting the message this is a really big deal and you know just having james and jeff and miles on the call and um you know should reflect on how much investment each one of them individually and Jody, you and, and the organizations we've worked for and conservation in general has fought to this point that we're not only going to get LWCF funded at uh, 
900 million a year with the access program that Jeff mentioned, but we're also going to get some deferred maintenance, nine and a half billion dollars for deferred maintenance on for federal lands. And uh, I am a previous reformed federal employee for two agencies. And thinking back to my time in those agencies and how much uh, folks spent, particularly uh, managers and budget people spent on trying to address the deferred maintenance needs and then seeing the needs actually out on the ground, whether it be a trail or a road or whatever it is, I'm so glad that's going to happen. And it's going to, you know, it's really going to allow us to really spruce up and fix some of the issues that have been lingering out there for a long time. So I'm back. You got to deal with me. I've got the control panel here and uh, hopefully we get this vote started. That looks like they... They've got about nine minutes left. Well, they've got about nine minutes left on the second half of the vote that they were working on beforehand. But again, it should this one should not be extended because most of the members were on the Capitol for the first vote. Um, And the same would go for Great American Outdoors Act. So theoretically, we're going to move on pretty quickly into that. And Jeff and James, I actually want to bring up that deferred maintenance piece, uh, because that was another critical piece to this puzzle, wasn't it? Yes. Um, and, and, and again, James, I'm sorry if I keep, just shut me down if you want to, you know, but, uh, no, Mr. Chairman, um, you're fine. It it was, it was, uh, oh, thanks for that. I love that. Um, uh, it was, it was the, the most significant part about that was there was a deal to, uh, have this combined bill work on the deferred maintenance on our national park system, which we all agree is extremely important. It's a flagship uh, of our public lands, uh, but they uh, they had left out a lot of the lands that, that uh, we as sportsmen and women use, namely BLM, Forest Service, and the refuge system. And so um, as pre-COVID, but this spring, as this was starting to really get some momentum, we went to bat uh, uh, in the Senate at the time to really work with the champions of the bill and with the White House to make them understand how important it was to expand this bill. And at the time, um, you know, I honestly didn't think they were going to add three billion extra dollars uh, onto a six and a half billion dollar package because billions were big before COVID, you know, and now now trillions, they throw trillions around up here. So the game's changed a little bit. But uh, that three billion extra dollars that was included in the expansion to include uh, the Forest Service, the BLM, the refuge system, and tribal lands is huge uh, for the sporting community. Um, you know, those those combined lands provide 25 million hunting days and 45 million fishing days for America's sportsmen and women every year. So um, that is a gigantic win. Uh, the overall bill is a gigantic win, but that that access component and the inclusion of these other federal public lands really tries at the heart of, of what we as sportsmen and women were, were pushing for in a policy, uh, in the policy arena up here in, in the Congress. So feeling good right now, waiting for the vote also. They did just say that it just was on a other thing that up next is this vote. So uh, as soon as they get through, and like I said, they should not have to extend this particular vote because uh, people will be close to the Capitol to make that vote. And so we should be seeing it here. There it looks like the, Next vote will happen somewhere in the next six to eight minutes, which will be ours. So we'll keep an eye on it. So, Jody, so, just okay. to expand yeah. a little bit on what Jeff was talking about, um, for for folks who aren't familiar with how the federal government works, they work with appropriated dollars and trust fund dollars 
to do the job of managing our natural resources. And when you look at things like fire deferred maintenance, there have been times in the very recent future that we've had to take money intended for the management of wildlife and use it to fight fire or address deferred maintenance, particularly in emergency situations. So what excites me about the deferred maintenance part of this is they're no longer going to have to go in and raid other programs, uh, particularly resource programs to get, you know, things up to speed. And, you know, that's going to allow that stuff to go back to wildlife range, forestry, recreation. And, uh, and, and, you know, that, that's sort of a, uh, one plus one equals four situation there. And, you know, I think it takes a little bit of understanding or having worked as a, as a federal biologist or, or federal employee to understand really that the, this is huge funding that deferred maintenance. You know, Steve James, and James, maybe if you could expand a little bit, because what he mentioned is, you know, it used to be when we had fires, a lot of the federal budget had to go fight that. But a, Another huge piece of legislation is what we call the fire fix uh, passed, uh, I guess it was last year. And tell, tell us how that in, fits into all this, James, if you can. So, so very good point, uh, uh, Miles. So if, it, it, and really, if you look at this year and last year, you know, hunters, anglers, outdoor enthusiasts, us in conservation have had some pretty huge wins. I mean, it's been really, really good, you know, and, whether it's what we're talking about today or what you just mentioned, Miles, looking at the firefighting fix, you know, we've got, you know, 150 million acres or more at, at a high degree of risk of catastrophic wildfire in this country. And the fix that Congress passed last year where they took mandatory monies to, to help pay for firefighting in uh, reducing fuels out there on the landscape, primarily in your part of the world in the West. Uh, we've had 60 inches of rain so far here, so we're okay, I think, on the fire, on the fire situation. <laughs> uh, 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 might drown, but we're okay on fire. Uh, so, <laughs> Pump it up here. So, yeah. Uh, so really, what's happened, whether it be primarily with our national forest, as well as some extent with the Bureau of Land Management uh, and national parks, Congress has really provided some very good, very good legislation uh, in the in the past 18 months that really helps us fix a lot of this. Bruce Westerman in Congress, uh, he's a member of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, uh, member of the, the Western Forestry Caucus. He's the only forester in Congress took a real lead there. And uh, he, he really, really fortunate to have people with insight that understand uh, not only how government works, but understands how forest management and wildlife work. And, and for that, I thank him. I want to mention one other thing too, and, and certainly you know you can't go a single evening, you know, or day without you know thinking about our economy and we're thinking about COVID. Uh, and if you look at 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 funding and what's going on, you know, we're going back to when Ronald Reagan was president. This has nothing to do with Reagan, but but in the 1980s we were spending about four percent of our appropriated dollars in this country on everything to do with environment, natural resources, conservation, et cetera. And now we're less than one percent. And so funding, which went to the Forest Service, you know, last year on the firefighting fix, funding that we're talking about today with with uh, uh, the Great American Outdoors Act really helps us move the needle and getting us back to where we need to be. If, if most people in this country have no idea that we spend less than one percent on conservation and environment of our entire federal budget, uh, when it, it, it we're trying to put people back to work. Uh, you know, the outdoors employs about 5 million American jobs or puts that many jobs out on the landscape, uh, almost 800 billion in annual economic in, uh, output. 
with about a 2.2% uh, GDP. So we are part of the economic equation. We're all part of getting America back to work. We are part of social distancing. Uh, trails were mentioned earlier. That's a great way to, to, to get out and, 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 and get some exercise outside of staying in your home and, and, and be able to social distance at the same time. James, I think that's a really good and important point because that's one of those things that um, the COVID-19 crisis definitely showed a lot of people that, uh, that that ability to get outdoors is so important. The ability to take a walk on a, on a trail or to get into the outdoors. And, and for, for those of us who are lucky enough to live near areas where there are public lands, we went out a lot uh, as often as we could because you can, in many cases, social distance out in your forest service lands out here in, in the West. Um, and then you can also get on a trail and get out and stay healthy. So that was, a, I think, an important part of that is recognizing how important that that public land system, whether it's your local parks up to your federal lands, national parks, national forests, wildlife refuges, I think it came very clear. The other part is with the deferred maintenance, where we've had a lot of communities who have lost jobs during this shutdown of, of, of the economy for a number of months. These funds for deferred maintenance will be able to employ people on the ground in these communities that may have lost tourism in income over this last few months. And I think that's an important part, too. So this is there's people who, who are concerned and I don't think all of us are a little bit about about spending. But this money is going for it's going to help jobs on the ground. It's going to help what Americans realized was really important, the ability to get outside and recreate in a time when we, we faced some of the the more challenging circumstances that our country's faced in a long time. You know, Jody, I, uh, to follow up on that too, you know, the trend is uh, a lot of the state wildlife agencies are, are seeing their hunting and fishing licenses, uh, uh, sales go way up from where they've been. Uh, some of the retailers uh, on another board I'm on, the National Deer Alliance, we have some retailers that are, uh, they're having some of their best uh, fiscal quarters because people are buying gear to get in the outdoors. And, and, the, and you know, when the national parks were shut down for a while during COVID, the state parks were overwhelmed with people trying to get in and they had to shut them down in, in about noon and tell some people left, they let people in, but everybody wanted to get outside, whether it was boating, fishing, hiking, whatever. And I, I think through all this, we're gonna find how important recreation, hunting and fishing and being outdoors is to, our, to the American public. I think that's a really good point. Uh, and, and, I, and I definitely saw it here, in fact, uh, walking just in our community and we have uh, several parks and green belts and unfortunately I don't live as as rurally as I would like to at the moment but we do have a, a nice green belt and park network and I saw more people out walking uh, and recreating during the, the the shutdown than I ever have and, and I'm hopeful I see them continuing to go out and get out and and I I used to say when I worked on LWCF these local parks are actually the the kind of gateway to our bigger public land system and and if we're interested in getting more people recreating getting more people fishing getting people more people outdoors providing that opportunity to see nature and experience nature close will will encourage them to explore it in a broader area and, and give them that natural experience and that connection there so 
So I, I wanted to take the opportunity because, uh, James, one of the things that, that you started to talk about was the, the amount of uh, conservation funding in the federal budget. And I think that's an important topic. And I, I want to segue a little bit for a little while. I think they're going to be starting to vote on here. They, they, the, uh, the vote on the, the previous bill is, has timed out. They're going to get close I, relatively quickly here. They don't have that many more to go. So I think they're going to be shifting to the vote here relatively quickly. But let's start talking about the American Wildlife Conservation Partners and the most recent recommendations that they put together, Wildlife for the 21st Century, Volume 6. Because we mentioned that uh, in that in that report, there is a mention of the decline of conservation in the federal budget. But let's go back a little bit and talk about what is AWCP? And James, your perspective from the Boone and Crockett Club because is going to be important because BNC were the ones that, that initially brought together members of the hunting conservation organizations 20 years ago, right? It, it, exactly. And you know, kind of forming coalitions and, and working together is certainly not new. I mean, we all, we all know the quote from Benjamin Franklin, if we, if we don't hang together, we'll surely hang separately. Well, back in, in, in August of 2000, uh, Dan Pedrotti, then the president of the Boone and Crockett Club, organized a really historical summit uh, in Missoula, Montana, at the club's headquarters. Uh, we had about 35 separate wildlife conservation organizations there, from, from Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation to Mule Deer to Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, any number of different organizations. And certainly they have their own interests they represent. But what we've been able to do is come together, whether it be conservationists, professional wildlife uh, and natural resource managers, educators, scientists, et cetera, working together and, and, and work with each other's area of expertise uh, to not only develop ideas and initiatives that we need to be moving through Congress uh, and the administration, uh, but helping each other support their own, their own initiatives that they're trying to get through. So by, by bringing this group, we're at now at 50 organizations uh, uh, as, of, as of this year, uh, pretty significant partnership. Everybody works together. You know, everybody is, is pretty much works uh, hand in hand with each other. There's no fighting. If it is, you're probably going to be asked to leave. Uh, but we really give, work give well us a sense of, of some of those groups real quick, just, give, just so people can get a sense of who we're talking about here. Sure. So you've got anywhere from Delta Waterfowl, uh, Safari Club International, Pope and Young, uh, the North American Falconers Association is a little different. Uh, the Wildlife Society, uh, uh, Rough Grouse Society, uh, I mentioned Mule Deer, the National Bob White uh, Conservation Initiative, uh, Wildlife Management Institute, the organization I work for, Wildlife Mississippi, uh, Conservation Force, any number of yeah, groups all over the country. National uh, Wild Turkey Federation, exactly. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited. Exactly. Right? Pheasants exactly. Forever. Uh, yep. All of the Camp, major. Camp yep. Yeah, all your major conservation groups uh, that that. But it's, not, it's with a little, little bit with a caveat, you know, you've got a lot of different groups that work in the area of conservation, but, but this, this particular coalition of organizations certainly believes in, in hunting and fishing. So that's a little bit what separates us from, from the rest of some of the coalitions out there. Uh, so Jody, I've got an interesting story about that. It's actually somewhat funny. When I was in Pinedale working for the BLM and, and you know, the I call them the deer and antelope wars, but we were struggling over how to develop the, the mineral resources and maintain winter ranges and long distance migrations. Um, got a call one day from someone at the interior back in DC and said, I need you to liaise with the AWCP groups that are coming to town. And I was like, 
what are what's AWCP? What's American Wildlife Conservation who that? Partners? Who that? <laughs> and I said, well, who's involved? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> they said, but one of the uh, guys that helped start it lives there in Pinedale. You may know him, Dr. Raleigh Sparrow. I said, oh yeah, I'll give Raleigh a call. So um, called him and found out. I was like, whoa. So doing my due diligence, I had to report back to the liaison from the secretary's office. I said, well, here's what I found out. This makes up, you know, all these groups and here's who on it. And it was, you know, the who's who, you know, you've seen the pictures of the, you know, and lo and behold, about two hours later, there was about four folks from DC that were coming out to accompany me as I liaised with AWCP on the Anacline and the Jonah fields. And um, James, I don't know if you remember that one, but we stood out there in the, the beginning of the Pinedale Anacline and we stood there and looked at that 43 acre pad that had nine wells on it. And we were going, well, is this going to be the future? How are deer and, and pronghorn and, you know, wild places going to coexist with this stuff. And, uh, you know, it's led to oh, 15, 16 years later, we're still working on that very question. But it really opened my eyes up as a federal biologist. And I think a lot of folks inside government at that time, particularly Department of Interior, that the, you know, that this group was very a very formidable group, a coalition that was looking to, you know, provide solutions to some very complex problems. And they were willing to throw the organizational weight behind that. And, you know, looking at uh, the wildlife for the 21st century that came shortly thereafter, I think that's what's happened over the past 15, 20 years. So, go ahead, James. Exactly. And, and uh, that's one thing we are going to miss this year. Uh, even though it's our anniversary as an organization, we're not going to be able to get together because of COVID. So, uh, and not not have our reunion at, back at the Boone and Crockett Club. So we, we yeah. do this all by Zoom. So, and, and that's always good to be able to, to visit with our fellow colleagues and learn about problems and, and, and how we try to solve them. And uh, we got some of, a lot of our conservation groups out there are kind of struggling through COVID. This was the banquet season, some of their fundraising season coming up uh, and, and, and they don't have that opportunity. So they're struggling. So I certainly encourage our listeners to, to support our conservation groups uh, that, that are members of ABCP. Yeah, well, we'll 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 circle back on that one in a little bit because I think that's something that we all can can reflect on here. Um, but I was interesting. I was talking to Tony Shonen, the the executive, uh, is he CEO of the Food and Crockett Club? Absolutely, uh, a great one. Speaking, that. yeah, he, uh, he was. I, he is now exactly. They changed his title just recently. That's why I was. I wanted to make sure. But I was talking to Tony, and he said, you know, the interesting thing is that in August of two thousand when we pulled together that first meeting of what became the AWCP, it was, there was a fire in the Bitterroot Valley. And he said the smoke was, was so difficult, it was so dense that you could barely see across the river. And he said, it, the interesting thing is that 20 years later, we're facing our own challenge that's not going to be able to allow us to pull together. But in these times of, of crisis, in these times of challenge, is when often we get the clarity that we need and, and that we can work together and, and move forward on these, these things that we all see as an important issue for us to work on. So so I think I found that interesting. It is disappointing that, that AWCP will not be able to meet this year in person on the 20th anniversary. I suspect you all will find a time to celebrate that in the future when we, we do get back to normal. But turning to the wildlife for the 21st century report, 
shortly after you guys convened, you came together with a series of, it was facilitated, you came together with a series of issues and topics that you thought would, uh, were areas where you could get along, uh, get to work together on. From that came some back and forth and discussion and the very first wildlife for the 21st century, which happened at the turn of the millennium. So that was pretty relevant at the time. And since that time, these reports have been made available to uh, during every presidential election. And they sort of create a, a, a path, a, a, a general consensus by these groups of the issues of importance that, that, that you encourage the elected officials for two Congresses and one administration to work on during those four years. Is, is that correct? And can you tell us a little bit, both Jeff, because you were a former chair of AWCP as well, and James, give us a little bit of perspective on the previous versions and some of the things that came from those documents that we are seeing chief among them, um, one of the issues we're looking at today on, on C-SPAN right now. Hey, Jody, before we get there, I just got to cut in and, and mention that Miles was also chair during an election year on one of these versions. So, Miles, uh, we're not leaving you out there, bud. Yeah, yeah sorry. no, sorry. no vol volume four was a classic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's when I was chair and... and uh, uh, I think I volume two was the best one we've <laughs> Well, Jeff, all I can say is you and I had De Desiker to help us. These guys had to rely on Jody and Shield Greg Shieldwalker. So. Yes, Which is did. why this is the best one ever. Come on now. <laughs> For full disclosure, um, I... I helped the AWCP for Boone and Crockett. Uh, these guys write it, but then I tried to turn it into something that was a little easier to for, for people to understand and read. That would be uh, a report that, that members of Congress, uh, Capitol Hill, and the public could look at for the recommendations and move forward. So these are all their ideas. I just tried to help it look and feel uh, with the help of Boone and Crockett Club's outstanding uh, graphic designer, Julie Tripp, to make it look and read a little bit easier. So so that's my role in it, and that's why I'm gonna say it's the best ever. But of course, the ones you guys did were pretty awesome too. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so tell us a little bit about what they, what, how these kind of came about, the adaptation or the, the development over the last six volumes. Um, and, and again, give us some ideas of some of the things that you guys included in those reports in the past that we have seen come about. All right, James, you want to start or you want me to start on this one? Hey, you go ahead and start on this one and I'll back you up. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, and Jody, you know firsthand because you, you, you've helped us edit a couple of these now for sure, if not more. Um, trying to get 50 groups to agree on priorities and then trying to group those priorities into, into a series of recommendations and then trying to boil those recommendations down into a report that doesn't look like something that came out of a, you know, a term paper at a, at a university and actually somebody can look at um, is pretty challenging. And, and so um, the, the effort just alone in trying to get consensus on some of these bigger, bigger issues and, and they really, um, they're really based around a number of different areas that we're all familiar with as, as conservationists and sportmen and women. And, you know, it's, it's talking about funding, it's talking about access, it's talking about, uh, habitat management, some of the key big things that we work on, and, and some of them are directly tied to legislative efforts. You, you brought up the land and water conservation funding and backlog maintenance. I mean, these have clearly been efforts that uh, 
uh, Washington works at glacial speed sometimes, you know, and, and uh, it's been a long time coming to get to where we are on some of these. Uh, but, um, you know, I think that if you tie, if you overlay wildlife for the 21st century with, with the federal advisory councils that uh, got started in the Bush administration, um, were reauthorized and chartered in the Obama administration, and then again chartered in, in the current Trump administration, you know, the, the backbone for the recommendations all come back to AWCP and all come back to the wildlife for the 21st century. So it is the way to get the, the major groups together to agree on certain principles and then to try to put them forward in a, in a cohesive and, and condensed version so somebody can understand what we're trying to accomplish. And, and just that alone is just a, that's a pivotal shift from before 2000 when the groups really were working independently to, to now where it's really coalescing around multiple layers from, from the Congress to the White House and the, the various land management agencies. And I think we're in a stronger position as a community of sportsmen and women through, through the AWCP groups than we've ever been before. You know, what, what Jeff said about getting all the groups together reminded me of something that Senator Lott, Trent Lott, used to tell me about the Senate. He said, running the Senate's like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bullfrogs. Once, once I get enough in, three more have done jumped out. You know, so, uh, uh, so in, in all honesty, what, you know, while it's tough to get everybody on board and, and, and supporting uh, and, and pushing on all this, the thing that, that the common thread is these are all achievable. A lot of groups are pushing ideas that are not achievable. These are achievable. They're concise and they're very helpful to whether it's a Democratic administration or Republican administration or that particular uh, party in Congress. So these have been very, very good as helping us kind of have a blueprint of where we want to go to help improve conservation and hunting and fishing. Um, you know, and if I could follow up, I, I had to check out for just a second, but I may have missed it. But but one of the things we learned is early on, we used to give this to uh, the administration after the election and moving it to uh, before the election and giving it to both candidates, whether it's an incumbent or in a lot of cases, uh, two new uh, candidates. Um, if you don't get in early, it's really hard to get into their transition teams and, and the things that they want to accomplish in their first hundred days. And I, you know, I mean, Jeff lives there in D.C. He can tell you how important it is to get really early into the into what they're going to want to do in their four to eight years. That's right. And I think that these these recommendations help to outline um, and when it's seen and backed by 50 organizations, it, it, it gives them a huh. OK, this is a fairly um, moderate conservation vision that with achievable actions. And, and, and it's very explicit in some of those achievable actions, I think, that, that they can take either as an administration or Congress can then pick up the mantle and move if it's a, if it's a legislative vehicle that's necessary to move it. And, you know, some of the early work that, that the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation did, you know, was, you know, identified about a third of all the voters or sportsmen in this country. 80% of our sportsmen are likely voters and eight and 10 actually vote their sport. So, so, this this gives them an opportunity, you know, going into an election to to take some some positions that not only benefit our interest in terms of hunting and fishing and conservation, but hopefully help be rewarded for doing so at the polls. 
That's right. So let's do a little bit, if you guys don't mind, um, let's take a little bit of a look at what's in there. Obviously, Great American Outdoors Act is mentioned by name in there. We talk about the concept of dedicated funding. And this is something, Jeff, um, that I think I'd like to, to bounce to you because we've talked about, about the Great American Outdoors Act. That's something that came together uh, during this and 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 is will be a great win when they get there. I think they're getting <laughs> close now. <laughs> hey, live, go for it. So, Jody... But, uh, <laughs> You know, why don't but you they, throw out where, where folks can find this? It's under. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was going to yeah, say, I think yeah. they're they're getting close. They have two, they have 18 people so far that have not voted in this final vote. So I, I think they're about to call it. They're probably going to gavel the, the vote previous, which means they're going to move into this vote here shortly. You can check on cspan.org. It's c-span.org. Uh, and look at the House viewer for the House proceedings, or you can just go to house.gov, and uh, there is a link at the top that says Watch House Proceedings, and you can click on that, and it'll uh, lead you to a, a viewer that you can watch the vote as it's occurring. Again, they're not quite there. They haven't gaveled on the uh, the bill ahead of them yet, but they're getting close. Um, oh, 17 haven't voted yet. Uh, and so, Joby, why don't, why, don't, why don't you let our listeners know where they can follow along with uh, Wildlife for the 21st Century, because it is a public Okay, document. oh yeah, yeah. gotcha. Um, so, boonandcrockett.org, it's boon-crockett.org, has the report up, posted there. Uh, you can go and check there, and we have it all broken there by sections. Also, the American Wildlife Conservation Partners website, which I believe is its American wildlifeconservation.org is the website that uh, that houses that groups. It, it's mainly just the, the Wildlife 21 and the list of the organizations. So on the dedicated funding, the one thing, and I, I started off this conversation about how this is kind of a, 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 a watershed moment in my life and career because it's something I worked on um, back 20 years ago with the Conservation and Reinvestment Act. One of the other components of dedicated conservation funding was funding for state fish and wildlife agencies. I'll leave it to the three of you guys, if whoever wants to talk about that. And then Jeff, you can also talk about recent house action on that and whether or not uh, we have some, some potential for, for seeing some action on that still this year or in future Congresses. Yeah, great. Go ahead. If you guys want to, James or, or Miles want to talk. James, you and I started on Teaming with Wildlife, I think, right. 20 plus years ago, right? That's where we first met. So do you want to? That was a long me? time ago. <laughs> Trust me, I know. <laughs> and, and keep watching the C-SPAN, it's going to be longer. So, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> so it's, you know, if if you look at, at how, you know, whether it's hunters buying fishing, fishing licenses or, or through, you know, Dingle Johnson, you know, that name sounds familiar, uh, that helps provide, you know, funding on the fishery side when every time you buy a fishing product, you know, 10% of that goes in, into benefiting fisheries conservation, or if it's on the, on the Pittman-Robertson side, 10% goes to, of your purchases of, of hunting equipment goes to helping run those state agencies on both of those ends. So we're constantly working, especially in the, as the states are suffering uh, with tax revenue, we've actually seen a, a bump in Mississippi in terms of license sales because of COVID. Uh, but certainly, we, you know, this this is going to help out the states, you know, on the land acquisition side, uh, as as we see this this vote move forward in the in this later this afternoon. And I know Jeff has been working on other pieces of legislation that will that will fund the states in in different forms as we move forward. Jeff, you want to kind of hit on some of those? 
Sure. So uh, I think what everybody's talking about is something called the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, and that came about uh, as a legislative proposal, really through Boone and Crockett, through the, the AWCP Wildlife for the 21st Century, but really coalesced into a broader uh, initiative based on a blue ribbon panel that was chaired by Bass Pro Shops founder Johnny Morris and former Governor of Wyoming, Dave Frudenthal, um, to look at this challenge of more and more responsibilities coming on to, to the state wildlife agencies, especially um, as more plant and animal species are proposed for potentially being listed under the Endangered Species Act. And so um, the effort was to find some dedicated funding. Uh, a proposal came forward. There's an alliance now created around this sole proposal uh, called Recovering America's Wildlife Act. And the idea behind this was to uh, put just shy of $1.4 billion. And then again, initially it was gonna come from onshore and offshore oil and gas revenues. So it wouldn't be new funding. Um, the funding has gotten a little changed during Congress, but the effort to direct funding back to the states in a dedicated account for species of greatest concern, and there are approximately 12,000 candidate species of animals and plants and whatnot that uh, potentially could end up on the ESA, and that is not where anybody wants to see anything end up, um, you know, both from a conservation standpoint or landowner standpoint. So this is a proactive effort to try to inject more funding into the states to look at these issues primarily. Um, it is it has been a slog because of, again, the price tag uh, was on it. And uh, but we're happy to say that the, the effort got a big boost. Uh, it was passed as part of a a broader um, transportation and infrastructure bill right before the 4th of July uh, as an amendment to that on a voice vote. And so now Recovering America's Wildlife Act is out of the House. So uh, unfortunately, that's a very, the final vote was pretty partisan on that. So um, we're still in the, trying to figure out a Senate strategy, but we've got it halfway out of the Congress right now. And, you know, if we could pull the Great American Outdoors Act, and then this one out, it would be probably one of the most, well, maybe the most historic. I'm retired. Certainly in our lifetime. <laughs> I'm done. You know? I'm out. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> these are huge, huge efforts to, to, to put big money at, at real problems, you know, throwing little yeah. dollars at problems never solves them. And these are attempts to put some real money towards really addressing the issues. And, and uh, again, originally the funding was, was already was already there that that took some turns for a lot of political reasons but nonetheless they're a five-year a five-year rawa don't like that acronym but anyway the the recovering america's wildlife did get a five-year authorization at one point just shy of 1.4 billion dollars so um huge win in the house also so we'll we'll we're we're working the Senate as hard as we can. Our challenge now is we don't have a lot of legislative days with a uh, national um, presidential election year. So um, we're going to see what we can do, but be sure we'll be back again if we don't get it done this Congress. So that's the way you got to work it here in Washington is persistence, persistence, persistence. So Absolutely. And I'm going to just jump in here real quick because the vote has started on the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, it is H.R. 1957 now. That is the 
the Senate passed bill that moved over to the House. So uh, anybody who is watching online or wants to, you can get a get a look at the vote tally as it goes up here. And uh, and one comment I did want to make, uh, just in terms of the House process, because of COVID regulations, they are voting in groups by last name, and uh, and and there's also proxy votes for, for members who are not in in the uh, chambers and able to vote as well. So I think that's some of the reason why those two previous votes. Uh, went a little bit slower. Uh, right now we're looking at 66 yays and 33, oops, 69, 70. We can tally them up as we go along. Let me back up just a little bit and give, a, again, a little bit of a historical perspective on State Fish and Wildlife Agency funding because as James mentioned, historically Fish and Wildlife Agencies, Fish and Wildlife Management has been funded it by user fees paid by hunters and anglers. Uh, excise taxes on sporting arms and ammunition, as well as archery equipment, is the Pittman-Robertson Fund. Uh, and the Dingle Johnson Wallet Bro, which uh, uh, adapted over the years, is fishing equipment, as well as motorboat fuels and a few other things as well. Um, and that has funded largely sport fish restoration activities. In addition, uh, things like duck stamps, uh, license fees, hunting and fishing license fees, permits, those are the things that go to fund state fish and wildlife agencies. Most state fish and wildlife agencies receive very little general fund dollars from their state coffers and state taxes. They're getting most of their funding from most of their agency work. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's somewhere around 60% of the funding comes through sportsman's dollars. So the idea behind Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which initially started with the concept of teaming with wildlife uh, 20 plus years ago, uh, is to provide an additional source of funding to these agencies so that they can deal with the challenges they're facing with all wildlife species uh, and, and the expanded challenges as we, we face loss of habitat, things like that. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned species of greatest conservation need. That is a, a legislative term in, in mm -hmm. how it, uh, the states are addressing these issues. Um, mule deer in the West, in many states, are considered a conservation need. It's, it's an issue, uh, uh, migrations, loss of habitat, so a lot of the Western states, this isn't, this isn't indigenous I think it's, species. Jody, let me just jump in. I think it's in all of the, the all they of the are in Western all states. of the, the, at least the, the last versions that I've looked, mule deer was in all of them as identified either the top priority or secondary priority for species of greatest conservation need. Yep. So conservation of wildlife and management has gotten more expensive, uh, Revenues from uh, from sportsmen's license fees have, in some cases, maybe not this year, gone down. So these are ways to augment what state fish and wildlife agencies do for conservation, hunting, fishing, bird watching, outdoor recreation opportunities. So that's what this is all about. So that's the conservation funding, which was priority one, recommendation one with the uh, Americans, uh, the, the uh, Wildlife for the 21st Century report, the AWCP report. The, I want to just call out a couple of the other priorities that I think will be of particular interest and just as a vote check, 122 to 51 at the moment. Um, the One of the priorities that is new this year that has never been in a uh, wildlife for the 21st century is, the, is recommendation number three, which is migration quarters. So I will throw that out there, Steve and Miles, to talk about how that came about, why that's now in there, and a couple of the recommendations that are included in the specific actions that are included in Wildlife 21. Well, you know, uh, migration corridors really take, have always been on our, our radar screen, but not until 
really uh, Secretarial Order 3362 uh, signed by Rep uh, Secretary Ryan Zinke at the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo uh, two years ago, really jump-started that with uh, a partnership between the federal government, state agencies, and NGOs across the country. And, uh, you know, most everybody knows about the famous uh, Wyoming migration corridors, uh, migrations that uh, you're seeing. Um, in fact, some of the longest uh, migrations in North America are are mule deer and they're in Wyoming and, and other states were finding the same thing. They're, uh, in fact, uh, we have a cooperative biologist in Arizona working on a on migration in Arizona and they've actually found a deer herd moving in a direction they had no idea where they came from. So more and more they're being highlighted and especially with things like wildlife crossings on, uh, on highways uh, and we're also you know, that's a high priority in funding in the transportation bill and other bills that are out there is trying to get more money for, for wildlife crossings on highways. But but yeah, it's, it's taken on a huge high priority and uh, lots of interest. And what one of the things we're trying to do is a secretarial order can be um, eliminated, you know, to stroke of a pen by a new administration or, or a secretary can decide it's no longer necessary. We're trying to get it institutionalized so that it's in policy and Steve can talk to that in there, in the, how, how the agencies do business. So that's a, that's a big push for us. Yeah, Miles, and we don't want to downplay the role that you and MDF and, and those of us who've worked on this really throwing our weight behind this. Um, when you look at the recommendations, a couple of things come out is where animals cross the road is great. Uh, and those structures are really expensive. And unfortunately, we hadn't done a very good job of coordinating with our Department of Transportations in each state, nor the Federal Department of Transportation. So that's come a long way. And also that federal state coordination, oftentimes um, there wasn't good enough coordination on when the, we're putting collars on the animals at the state level to get then the habitat and land managers to understand that they manage the habitats and so how to coordinate that effort. And so what the recommendations are really based on getting folks to understand the importance of this, figuring out ways to work together across multiple agencies and between state and federal uh, agencies, and then really trying to find those management uh, things that will work and also the funding that allows us to maintain and conserve these corridors, whether they cross roads or not. And that's really being driven right now by uh, the technology, the ability to put satellite collars and uh, on animals to give us real-time locations and then take the modeling that was developed, you know, starting in, in Western Wyoming and being tweaked to the point that we can really predict where these movement corridors are, how many animals are moving through each corridor. And then, you know, really the, the next step is, is what do we have to do to conserve and maintain these while we have uh, humans on the landscape. You know, we're producing energy, we're, we're using the landscape, we're recreating on it more and more every time. And, you know, so, so these stressors all add up. And really what we're finding is some of these things are a lot easier to do than once you get folks talking. And, you know, giving our partners credit through the AWCP groups, those that have taken on the transportation aspect of this and our state partners who have taken on really the, the lead role in trying to figure out where these big game go 
um, and really bringing it back to what do we all want? How can we do this together? And what's it going to take to get us to where we want to go? And, you know, we at MDF have, you know, uh, prioritized the, our migration and winter range uh, program, and we've been able to secure quite a bit of funding for it. We've been able to partner with states to provide needed capacity. And we're also, you know, looking to see what's next. And, and you know, it's been something I've worked on for over 20 years. And, it, you know, it's sort of like, Jody, you were saying that things you worked on long ago, you never thought were going to get to this point. When, when Secretary Zinke signed that order at the expo, um, to me, that was an extremely proud moment. One that I thought we wouldn't get to because having fought some very nasty controversial fights in western wyoming had we had an order like that things would have been much easier and i think we could have avoided some of the uh, controversy that that came up about that so you know i just want to give miles all the credit in the world um to make this a priority to you know having been there he and i've been working on this miles i think it's going on 15 16 years together and, you know, to see it get to this point and, and making it into the, the wildlife for the 21st century is one of the recommendations is an extremely proud moment for us at the Mueller Foundation. Yeah, and Steve, thank you. Uh, you know, one of the things that I did want to say, too, is since we've had that secretarial order, um, you know, um, as I called Jeff, Mr. Chairman, he's chair of the Hunting and Shooting Sports Council that is uh, a FACA committee with the uh, Department of Interior and Department of Agriculture, and I'm the chair of the Wildlife Conservation Committee. And we've been able to also bring that up through that system and uh, bring migration corridors and other hunting and uh, issues that are in, in W21 directly to the agency heads and to uh, uh, in, in both those uh, departments. And, you know, usually the Secretary of Interior and the Secretary of Agriculture at the, are at those meetings. And we really uh, are able to emphasize the things that are that are in W21 through either the, the Shooting Sports Committee, the Wildlife Conservation Committee, or the Hunting Committee. And so uh, we really have a lot of opportunities to address these issues. So just a quick update, we're at 186 to 63, 7, 187, 63 right now uh, in a vote. So we're, we're moving forward pretty quickly to, uh, to where we need to be just to pass it. But we're going to far exceed that, it looks like, hopefully, as all things and all word on the street is. Let me just read off real quick for you uh, all what the specific recommendations and actions are. I'm not going to get in. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But uh, for, under the wildlife migrations, uh, improve transportation planning to reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. There's suggestions about a fed, uh, passage of the federal highway bill with a wildlife crossings pilot program and a priority project list with state transportation and wildlife agencies for wildlife vehicle collision reduction and to improve habitat connectivity. So those are the two area uh, specific actions under transportation planning. The other is under federal state coordination to establish a permanent program based on SO3362 with assigned staff and funding. Uh, to develop a companion effort. So SO3362 is a Department of Interior um, secretarial order. So far, there is not a similar one in the, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Forest Service is increasing and natural resource conservation services as well. 
the idea would be to, to have a similar uh, effort in the Department of Agriculture. And then at Wildlife Corridors grant program to provide matching funding for states and tribes for reconnecting wildlife corridors. So those are the specific actions. If you want to, getting down to the brass tacks of what does Wildlife 21 say, that's what we're recommending. That's what AWCP came to an agreement on under the big game migration corridor area. Um, I want to move on to a couple of the other topics, unless somebody else had wanted to just, my, Steve, if you wanted some closing thoughts on the migrations, Miles? Oh, no. I mean, um, oh, good. you know, getting back to, it is a priority for MDF. It, it is one thing that I think we're making some real progress on. And if you want to know more about it, you know, reach out to us and, and you know, support us. Uh, Jody, just a process check. Is it 218 when we know this is, is passed? 218 it is the actually total vote count to pass a bill at this point. We are at 197 to 65 199. right now. Yep, we are. Oh, my, my stream must be slower than yours yeah, up there in and, and my Montana. internet is lagging, lagging behind you two. So I I <laughs> I'm supposed to have like 5G or something. <laughs> well, it, it's ticket up there. So we're, we're, we're getting close for sure. Um, Technically, I, those of you who are watching it, if you are watching that vote, you're going to see that the time remaining is going to end, but they will keep this open. Again, it is a slower vote time these days because of how they have to group the votes and because of the proxy voting that some people who are not in the chamber to be able to vote are doing. So they're going to keep that open until they, they reach their threshold of, of uh, I mean, it sounds like, it looks like there was about, oh, about 17 only about 17 or 18 aren't voting there to vote at all or not voting. So we'll, we'll hit there pretty close. Um, so one of the other ones I wanted to call uh, um, into focus and we can go back and look at some other ones was recommendation six for the wildlife 21. And that is active management of federal lands. Um, and I wanted to call attention to that because mule deer foundation through some of the work we were doing, we are doing on stewardship, some of the big game migration corridor work that we are doing uh, involves active management. And I want to throw it out to Steve, the biologist, to explain, and Miles, the biologist, to explain what we mean by active management. And, and James, you can provide perspective nationally because I know you work a lot on timber management and the importance of timber management and, and active management for other wildlife species not in our Western states. So why don't you guys give us an example, understanding of what that means to do active management? All right. Well, I'll take a crack at that, Jody. So um, the stewardship program in particular is exciting because it was authorized through the Healthy Forest Act of 2003. It's been made permanent and it allows us enter, to enter into agreements up to 20 years long, which then specific projects uh, or supplemental project agreements can be then done with the Forest Service and to a lesser extent, the, uh, the Bureau of Land Management. But it really is a win-win situation for both the agency and the organization where, where we're able to go into areas and get things done that the Forest Service may not or could not get done given their priorities, their funding, their capacity issues. So we have a, a pretty large program. I think we have 16 active projects going this summer, but we have, I think, uh, 20 or 30 um, that are out there and, you know, some of them aren't funded this year and some of them are put on the shelf because of COVID-19. But we're talking about millions of dollars and tens of thousands of acres that would not be getting done unless the stewardship program at MDF um, was, you know, didn't exist or existed. So it, it really gives us the ability to go out 
work with partners. Uh, there's an 80-20 match requirement. So for uh, any project, 20% of the total cost of the project has to be brought to the table uh, from the partner. So MDF in this case would provide the 20% and it allows us to really, you know, get things done that the Forest Service can't get done right now. And, and so we've got quite a few projects in the West. Um, most we have, we have a very strong program uh, led by Kevin Zeman out in California and, and the Colorado Utah Southwest is led by Stan Baker out of uh, Utah. And those guys are awesome. And they know how to get this stuff done. They know how to work with the, the Forest Service and our other partners to get, you know, identify the projects, put out a plan of work, and then go find partners and leverage miles to support those things. And it all ultimately, you know, we're, we're putting uh, probably conservatively 10,000 additional acres of habitat improvements on the ground every year. And what, what, when you think about what deer need, um, Succession and lack of active management can lead to situations both in our rangelands and in our forest lands that animals don't have what they need to survive, whether it be food, whether it be shelter, whether it be water in some cases. And so we're, we, we go into these priority areas and we work with the agency biologists and oftentimes the states are there as advisors and, and partners and projects to do things the deer need. It may be reducing juniper in a sagebrush lane rangeland to reduce fire risk, or it may be opening up the canopy through a commercial thin or a pre-commercial thin, or it may hey, be Steve, going. Can I interrupt you and just tell you we hit 218. So yeah. oh, great. Hey, 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 finish line. <laughs> Sorry. But we're gonna... You can talk oh, about uh... juniper and thinning again. That's probably... yeah, no. <laughs> We want to see oh, it get no, bigger. That's... We want bigger numbers. We want to show how Yeah, well, it's going to go bigger than that. So Jody so... Jody should know that to throw the microphone my way on something that I know uh, I'm very <laughs> yeah. passionate about. I didn't mean so, to yeah, interrupt you. I just thought yeah. it was important to flag well, that we had crossed the, crossed the, the threshold. We crossed the threshold. important. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff talk about... I mean, you know, all we hear about is how split Congress is. I mean, when you look at this vote, and yeah, it's still more Democrats and Republicans voted for it, but but it's amazing how how partisan or uh, nonpartisan conservation legislation is. It just blows me away. Yeah, I, I mean, we always talk about how partisan Washington is, not just the Congress, but the administration and having worked up here, started in here in the early 80s uh, on Capitol Hill and took a long hiatus away, but back here again, it really has been um, very divisive up here uh, and and fingers can be pointed at, at, at any direction as to why, but um, starting with the passage of S-47, the John Dingle Conservation Act at the beginning of this Congress, picking up on the forestry stuff that, that James mentioned, uh, the target practice and marksmanship bill that passed last year, um, the, the, the provision to allow for funding for the Council for Advancement in Hunting and Shooting Sports and the R3 efforts, um, passage in, in the Senate of the ACE Act, uh, the passage of the House of the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, now Great American Outdoors Act. Um, there is only one thing that's unifying all of that, and that's conservation and and the outdoor uh, outdoor heritage, and I, I, again, I just think it speaks volumes to 
what we can get done if we pull together, uh, if we check the partisan baggage, if we check our own uh, hats at the door for our individual organizations and just work for what we all deeply care about. And, and um, this is huge. And so uh, uh, I wish I could figure out exactly what that secret sauce is, but we're going to keep, we're going to keep plugging and keep hoping that the, the, that these themes resonate and that we continue to get bipartisan votes. And, you know, um, we've got a Republican controlled Senate and a Democrat controlled house. And, um, this Congress is setting itself up to go down as one of the greatest conservation Congresses in, in our lifetime. And so, um, we just got to keep piling it on while we can. I, I don't know what the secret really is. Um, yeah. so we're going to keep trying it though. You know, Jeff and James, uh, the uh, uh, this has got to be the last few couple years of got rival the early seventies, right? With with some of the legislation that passed, um, I I mean I think you can rank it up there with endangered species and all the other acts that passed, you know, back then. Uh, Maybe even greater. I don't know. Yeah. That's no, that's what I mean. It's it's a yeah. lifetime ago since there was this much emphasis on environment and conservation. And so um, that is not a small feat. And, and everybody that's worked on this ought to really, uh, really celebrate and rejoice and feel good about it. And hopefully we're leaving things better for the next generation than we found it, which is always part of our mantra. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm ecstatic right now that this thing has gotten over the 218. I can tell you that much. You know, if well, you, you got... go back into the 80s, 1980s, we were cutting a, a, a lot of timber in this country. And then the pendulum swung the other way and we were almost cutting, you know, very little timber came off public lands. Uh, you know, and you had great outcries about anti-cutting and all of that. But I really think things are moving back toward the center. You know, we're... You know, we, we saw the forest legislation last year. We're seeing a lot more support, you know, for active forest management. People recognize that if we manage our forest correctly, they're better for mule deer, they're better for elk, they're better for whitetails. You know, we sell more hunting, hunting licenses. More money goes back to state wildlife agencies. We're reducing fuel loads out. We're reducing the amount we're spending in terms of wildfires. Uh, we're sequestering carbon, helping with climate change. A huge number of benefits from active forest management. And so I'm seeing even that getting a lot more bipartisan and, and working across across the aisle to help advance forest conservation goals in the Congress. Well, you know, you know, James, I, I, you're exactly right. You know, that's why we're we're just accelerating what we're doing out in California with with our uh, program out there. Is they got tired of whole towns burning up and uh, you know and fighting fires all the time. And, and even though we're having lots of other fires around the West right now. People are getting tired of that and, and, and the amount of money and resources. And now we're really, really starting to lose a lot of homes and hitting towns and stuff. And so I, you're seeing that pendulum swing, swing back to active forest management. And, and we've learned yeah, how to do things better today, too. And, and Miles, you were talking about, you know, and certainly, you know, Mule Deer Foundation deserves great credit, you know, for, for migration corridors. And one of the things I think it will stick is, is it's, it's based on science. And that's what a lot of us in the American Wildlife Conservation Partners are. Our backbone is science. And I think the more we stick with science, uh, the better off we are and, and the longer staying power we'll have with, with policies. Yeah, yeah, you're right. 
So I'm going to, real quick, I'm looking at 250 to 80. Obviously, our internet services are all different, so it's probably farther along on your your uh, computer screens. But uh, but we are clearly in a very high major- majority, uh, and, and it has passed. I do want to just make a comment to all of our, anybody who's a regular listener of the Mule Deer Foundation podcast, you all know that Steve and I really try to stick to that 30 to 45 minute podcast. We try to get that <laughs> average daily commute timing down. And that was our intention today for sure was to not be having to talk, but this is a great conversation. The vote's still going. So we're going to keep going on for our speakers, obviously for, for you guys, if you need to go as well, that is understandable as well, but we're going to stay on here until this vote goes through and is finalized. We still have a number of things on the uh, um, Wildlife 21 we can be talking about in the meantime, but I just wanted to, to flag that out there. Obviously, those of you who listen to us know we try not to be that long-term, um, it, and, and it just by necessity this time, we are going longer than usual, but uh, but hopefully you're learning out of this. I hope you're getting some good information and seeing the, the hard work that groups like Mule Deer Foundation, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, Boone and Crockett Club, Wildlife Mississippi, and, and a number of other groups are doing on your behalf. And that's, I, I, I guess, again, I want to segue back to the report, but the point um, of that is policy's messy, policy's ugly. Uh, it takes a lot of time to explain and understand and get the, the connection to it. But, but policy is essential to what we do when we're out in the great outdoors. We want to know that groups like CSF, and mule deer and others are working on these issues so that you're looking out for our best interests. And I think that's an important part. A lot of people like to say, I wonder why you get involved in them in the first place. But these days, this, (laughs) this is why we do this. Yeah, absolutely right. (laughs) Yeah. Good. So again, active management. Oh, go ahead, Jeff. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just say 20 years of work and guys, I do have to, I do have to bail. I I really appreciate um, being able to join you, Jody and Steve, and, and thank you to my colleagues and Miles and James and um, got some quick follow-up stuff with the Hill here that I got to jump on. But uh, um, the timing of this was great and I hope everybody takes a victory lap and, and cause we all deserve it. And, uh, um, look forward to the president signing this into law, but thank you for having me and look forward to joining you guys sometime soon. Well, thank Jeff, you, Jeff. Thanks, we Jeff. really thanks. appreciate thanks. your time. Thank you thank for you your leadership, Jeff. Yeah. You bet. See you guys. Take care. Uh, congratulations. Bye-bye. Yeah. Thank you. So, so yes, this is, uh, this is historic and, and, and I don't think we've actually said this, uh, but it is expected to get signed into law. Uh, there are bills that, uh, that get passed by both chambers that don't, but the president has said he will sign this. This is, um, passage in the house means it's going to go straight to, they're voting on the same bill that passed out of the Senate. So they do not need to go to a conference committee because the, the text of the bill is exactly the same. So it will go to the, the, the president with no other stops and, and he is expected to be signing this legislation. I'm not sure exactly when. I, I would like to think and hope that some of our community might be invited to that signing. Well, they probably won't do signing ceremonies anymore. Well, Jody, you know, going back to Schoolhouse Rock, he has what, seven days to sign or something like that? 
Uh, um, yeah, to our I'm civics. just a pill and he's up on Capitol <laughs> Hill and uh, yeah, um, <laughs> I, I suspect that will be happening at, uh, expeditiously. He is well aware of this bill. The uh, administration has been supporting it um, and, and saying that, that this is a priority for them as well. So um, I'm at 265 to 92. So talk about I'm at 270s. Drive. So we passed that <laughs> next threshold. So. Yeah, it's it's almost veto proof. So yep, it just so. became veto proof. 269 is veto proof. Well, that, people can always change their vote later, but so yeah, yeah. So um, so circling back on the active management, did you did either of you guys want to? Um, any of you folks want to talk a little bit more about what was in the report on that? Um, well, have have James talk about that because he's. I mean, he's heavily involved in active management of of forests, both in the south and as part of the Boone and Crockett Club. Yeah. So so you guys hit a good bit on uh you know on the west you know here in the in the southeastern United States you know we're looking at either. You know, our forest types are either bottomland hardwoods or, you know, upland hardwoods and mixed shortleaf pine or, or, or longleaf pine. And, and, you know, getting back in and being able to thin these forests for a variety of forest products, uh, being able to open that canopy up or put some sunlight on the ground, as we say, put some groceries on the ground for some on, for deer. Uh, uh, that's a lot of what we, we spend a lot of time working on. Invasive species control, whether it be kudzu or kogan grass or probably a lot of things. Miles, you in the West don't have or want, you know. So, uh, uh, but we got cheatgrass. Yeah, we'll give you. You got cheatgrass. That's right. We got we don't cheatgrass have on the deuce head. So, so, uh, uh, but really, trying to, you know, how how can we better utilize our forests to produce a diverse amount of forest products for the nation at the same time, you know, managing them for a diverse amount of species. You know, Jeff mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of these twelve thousand at risk species. You know. Well, if you're a hunter or an angler, you know, you probably say, why do I care about that? You should care about that, you know, because when we start having where, you know, the regulatory arm of the Endangered Species Act starts to dis dictate how we, you know, where you have, you know, politicians or, or, or judges starting to tell you how we are to manage, you know, our public lands, you know, the species we care about always don't, don't, don't turn out on the, on the good side there. So we want to keep where we are. You know, putting putting a lot of focus on active forest management to benefit species. Uh, just a good example, like on, in you know in the in, in recommendation five, that has a lot to do with the farm bill. You know, and you you've seen a tremendous amount of dollars going toward wetland conservation. When you look at wetland species, you know, because of that habitat work that's going on, they're doing pretty good. But where we've not been spending money and doing good habitat work, those populations are declining. And and we've got to we've got to reverse that at a time where we can do something about it, you know, and it doesn't you know, spiral to a, a population level that is going to be very hard to turn around. So let me just give a quick uh, um, on that mule deer. We've talked about how active forest management management help mule deer. They help elk in the West uh, the, to be able to get the groceries on the ground, like James just talked about, to be able to open up some cover to uh, improve aspen stands. Um, to restore sagebrush habitats. Uh, so, so here in the West, we have those things that we care about, but, but other species that people know and recognize, rough grouse, woodcock, bobwhite quail, all of them need um, early successional habitat or mixed successional with a, a, a mosaic. And those are all kind of biological terms. But basically that means they need some places where there's older timber, but they need some of those young, gnarly, uh, meadow habitats with saplings growing up. Being able to actively management habitat is good for 
the the areas, the surrounding areas for, for, for forage, for vegetation, for eliminating invasive species, but it's also helping some of these species that we love. And for those of us who aren't always looking at the, the game species, there's a whole bunch of warblers and uh, and New England cottontail and, and so many other things that also benefit from habitat management. We can't just let it lie. That doesn't work. We, we need to, to make sure that we have the mix of, of habitats that so many different species need and want. Well, Jody, so, you know, uh, going, yep. going back to the ecological training and wildlife management training that we all had, you know, as undergrads is that umbrella species sort of approach that can you use something that is um, fairly tangible to manage for and provide benefits to a lot of other species. And, you know, whether the last few years, sage grouse, greater sage grouse has been, you know, a rallying cry, uh, rightfully so because of where their populations are at. And, you know, we think that some of the game species um, can provide that. And we, we do a, we need to do a lot better job at, at really telling the public and telling the people that, you're not just getting more deer, more elk, more game species, you're getting a lot of other things. And, you know, this integrated management approach where we look at landscapes and we look at watersheds is, is really where I think the game is going to be at. You know, Miles often refers to as random acts of conservation, and I often call small things postage stamp conservation. Those are all great, but if we can start linking that stuff together and putting things as you've all heard me say, the maximum uh, impact that we can have with our efforts at MDF, we're going to benefit butterflies and we're going to benefit all these other species out there that need some active management because things have gotten out of whack. And, you know, for, from a mule deer foundation's perspective, you know, we also represent black-tailed deer. And when you look at the forest needs for black-tailed deer, whether it's uh, the species found in Alaska, the Sitka black-tailed deer, or the, the Columbia black-tailed deer in the lower 48, you know, that behooves us to go in and do more. Um, you know, the stuff we've looked at in southeast Alaska where, you know, the big logging contracts of the of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, now those second growth have grown up. They, they get to a stage called stem exclusion, which means there's no sunlight hitting the ground. And so if you don't open it up, like James said, to get those groceries on the ground, you're going to be affecting deer species, their populations, their distributions, and a whole lot of other things. And so those are the things we look at. That's the approach we've been trying to take with not just our stewardship program, but really trying to swing all of our efforts to be, you know, something that, that has real tangible benefits and moves towards positive outcomes rather than outputs. It's not just that we treat so many acres a year or fix so many miles of fence, but there's a response with those species and the wildlife and the habitat that we're trying to positively impact. Absolutely. So you also mentioned, um, Steve, earlier, and James, you mentioned it as well, one of the recommendations has to do with private lands conservation. We've talked an awful lot about public lands. Obviously, the bill we're looking at today is, which is a in my screen, just cracked the 300 mark, 300 to 105. Uh, and that to me, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit clumped if we want to go back to an old Saturday Night Live uh, <laughs> reference. But seriously, that is simply remarkable um, to watch that happening right now. That's that's amazing. Um, 
Private land conservation is it, clearly a lot of the best habitat is on private lands and, and private landowners are some of the best stewards of their the lands that they own. So farm bill conservation programs, conservation easements, these are other parts of what was recommended within uh, the overall recommendation five, the actions that were included there. Private land conservation is super important as well. Either any of you guys want to take up that mantle? Sure, I'll... I'll, I'll say a few comments on that, uh, Jody. Uh, so, yeah, if you look at, at, at you know, private land conservation and what private lands, they make up a huge percentage of, of habitat that we have in this country. It's not, you know, wildlife don't just live on a national forest or a national wildlife refuge. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that the Farm Bill is the single largest source of funding for conservation, uh, not only just in private lands, but it's the single largest, largest source of, co of funding for conservation in the nation. Uh, this is a, about $6 billion a year uh, in annual funding, and, and today we're talking about a total of nine. So just that puts a little bit in context. Uh, you've got a number of different programs. Uh, we, we work a lot with the Wetland Reserve Program. Uh, here in the lower Mississippi Valley, it's restored about a million acres of bottleman hardwoods uh, uh, back into habitat. Uh, uh, and quite frankly, one of the things that it's done that's pretty impressive is it contributed to the delisting of the Louisiana black bear. So we don't have any regulatory issues because of that delisting as we work toward managing these bottleman hardwood systems uh, in, the, in the lower Mississippi Valley. Uh, that, that program is an easement program. You, ha you have an, uh, another component of, of that that has to do with agricultural and grasslands uh, in terms of easements. Uh, you have also a big component in terms of working lands uh, within the farm bill. Uh, much of that is in, in the, the, the environmental quality incentives program. Uh, one of the things that American Wildlife Conservation Partners took the lead on uh, several years ago was they, they conceptualized and pushed through Congress the Wildlife Habitat Incentives Program. Uh, now that's been merged into the Environmental Quality Incentives Program. 10% uh, of the funding of that every year goes back into either restoring or enhancing wildlife habitat. So that's a, that's a good example of what AWCP has done that's resulted in, in real acres for fish and wildlife on, on the ground there. Uh, CRP is, is, is the Conservation Reserve Program is another one uh, that it, that's been a big champion between Delta Waterfowl Foundation, uh, Ducks Unlimited, and, and Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. They've been some of the, back, the large backers of those. Uh, the voluntary public access is another one that, that, that AWCP has taken the lead on and has resulted in uh, uh, lands being able to made, made public for hunters and anglers uh, that are private lands. So. Just a, a couple examples there of, of, of what ADBCP has done in terms of Farm Bill. We have recommendations on how to strengthen some of those provisions and make those better as we start moving into authorizing a new Farm Bill here in the next 18 months. So, and just to uh, to do an MDF shout out there, um, the Voluntary Public Habitat uh, and, and Access and Habitat Incentive Program, VPA HIP, which is the acronym people use, that funds a number of state-based walk-in access programs, of which one is the PLOTS program, Private Lands Open to Sportsmen in North Dakota. And Mule Deer Foundation, I'm going to shout out to Marshall Johnson there in North Dakota. Um, that is a program that we've gotten involved with working with a private landowner to do some restoration and to um, to to uh, remove fence and improve habitat there. And that's opening up some of that private land for open to sportsmen. And some of that funding comes through this program. And they are gaveling the final vote count, guys. 310 you know. to 107. Good. 
You know, uh, Jody, just real quick before, you know, what a lot of people, we talk a lot about public lands and, and this bill today is mostly uh, is public land, but, but wildlife spend a lot of time in the West on private lands and we can't forget about that. And one of the things migration corridor studies and the GPS callers have showed us is mule deer, uh, elk and antelope all go, all go uh, a lot of the year on private land. And so I, we can't forget that, how important they are. Absolutely. All right, Jody. Um, we're done. I, I, we are done. Round of applause. Hey, come on. Give us your uh, your funnel applause. noise meter. Come on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I cannot, uh, and I'm going to let everybody make a final statement, but um, I, I, this is, this is a, a huge victory for all of us. I'm so excited to see this happen uh, in my life and my career to have a, see a success on something I started on so many years ago. This is attributable in large part to the work of groups like AWCP. Thank you for listening in. I'm going to pass it around to everybody else to give their own closing thoughts. Go ahead, James. Uh, I, I'd just like to especially thank the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation and, and Mule Deer Foundation for thanks to y'all for hosting us today. And for all y'all's good work on, on making sure that we had 75% of the vote. And I've got one question for Miles. Do you really think I have an accent? Yeah. <laughs> you think we have an accent? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, James, I thank you. And, and not only are you, are you a great friend, uh, you're, you're a great, great conservationist. And you work tirelessly on this, this stuff that we we talk about and a lot of people don't see uh, all the work that you do. And thank you for, for everything that you do. And, and I, I'm glad you're a partner of MDF, but also glad that you're a friend and a fellow Boone and Crockett member. So uh, thank you. And uh, it's a team effort. I'm also a member of MDF. That's right. <laughs> you are. And you remind me of that every time I see you, because I usually have to buy you a drink. So, uh, no. And we appreciate um, that greatly. And if you aren't already. Yes, I'll take the last word, Jody. Yep. Um, Absolutely. To everyone out there that helped get this historic day and make it happen, thank you. Those that worked on this, like our, our uh, guest today and Jody, those that called, those that support the groups that worked on this, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I think this is going to have uh, generational impacts in the positive way for conservation. Um, if you have not reached out to your member, uh, to your to your conservation organizations that you belong, please reach out, thank them, call your senators, call your congressman or woman, and thank them for doing this. Um, join groups like the Mule Deer Foundation. We need your support. We want to know what you think, and we need you to be involved to keep this going and so that we can continue to have historic days like today and we can continue to get things good done for mule deer, black-tailed deer, and all other wildlife. And so with that, this is Steve Belinda, and thank you for talking mule deer. Thanks for talking mule deer with Steve Belinda and Jody Stemler. The Mule Deer Foundation is the only conservation group in North America dedicated to restoring, improving, and protecting mule deer and black-tailed deer and their habitat. MDF is a strong voice for hunters in access, wildlife management, and conservation policy issues. To find out more, visit www.muledeer.org and stay tuned for the next episode of Talkin' Mule Deer.